Good morning. Thank you for joining me. Uh, if you would, please turn over to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be reading quite a bit of scripture today. Um, the lesson, sermon today will be predominantly scripture. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and turn over there. Today we're going to be talking about sacrifice. We're going to be talking about um, God's standard, what his definition of a worthy sacrifice looks like, and then we're going to see precisely how that standard was met and what is now expected of us. Just a second. So here's all the scripture we're going to be using. Again, it's quite, it's quite extensive. So uh, I want us to go ahead and just jump right into it, but make sure you um, you take a look at all this scripture over here. Uh, screenshot it if you need to. Make sure you verify it with me. I'm going to be reading out of the King James Version as usual. So let's get into it with uh, Genesis chapter 4. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So allow me to pose a question to you. How did Cain know that Abel, uh, I'm sorry, how did Cain and Abel know to bring a sacrifice to God at all? H how did they know that? Um, you know, how did they know to bring an offering in the first place? And then, how did they know that they were supposed to burn it? Clearly, somewhere between verse 1 and verse 4, of this chapter, God instructed them to do so. Clearly, he instructed them to do so. Now, we're not told explicitly, but we have to assume that that's the case. They were told that that's what they were to do. Um, so he not only did God instruct them on what to do, but, but he instructed them how to do so. Now, I'll get, to, I'll get to those qualifiers in a minute. But why is this important? Because there is an argument right now and for a very long time, that God did not treat Cain justly. Because how could he have known that he was supposed to bring a blood sacrifice instead of some fruits and veggies? You know, are we really naive enough to think that Cain and Abel were both like, well, you know what, hey, let's bring the creator of the universe some gifts. And then God saw Abel's offering and, and was thinking, hey, I like that. Yeah. You know, I think I'll make people do that now. That's preposterous. God is very specific 
about what is good and what is acceptable. So I want us to look at a few more verses just to um, verify these things, okay? So we look over in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. It says, this is God explaining his, uh, he's qualifying what constitutes a worthy sacrifice. And he says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, now let's look at Exodus 29. We're going to be reading verses 38 through 46. He says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now let's look in Leviticus. So so we're starting to see a pattern here, right, of, of what God is uh, requiring of a sacrifice that is worthy. Let's look at the Levitical law. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron. I'm sorry, this is Leviticus 22. Um, I'm moving kind of fast here. Leviticus 22, verses 17 through 21. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers in Israel, who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows, or for any of his free will offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect perfect to be accepted. There sh- shall be no defect in it. So God's requiring a perfect sacrifice. Now, I want to emphasize something here. When he's talking about he has to offer it, that we have to offer those things, or the Israelites did at the time, of their own free will. What that means, it doesn't mean like, oh, well, you get to choose or you don't get to choose. What, what that means, because I don't want someone to misunderstand me, 
is that if you were a slave or a servant to a master, that your master was not forcing you to go make these offerings without consent. Um, right? You, you are coming to God and sacrificing of your own volition. Your master is not forcing you to worship his God. Okay. Um, so then let's look at, uh, so we're in Leviticus 22. Let's look at verses 31 through 33. We'll take a pause here. So it says, therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So clearly God has set a standard and that standard has been consistent for eternity. Okay. God's standard for a worthy sacrifice was the same prior to Levitical law being actually written down. Uh, So it was the same in Genesis as it was throughout all of the Old Testament and continually today. This is my point people ask how could the people prior to the writing of the Levitical law know what God's standard was well the very same way that they knew the historical account of creation the very same way that they knew who God was the same way they knew of Noah and of the flood God had told them And those things were passed down through generations, and they were eventually written down in the Levitical law. Now, that's quite a summation, but go back and read it. Now, that does not mean that God's law did not exist prior to Exodus 20, right? God was very specific, and Cain knew very well what God's definition of a worthy sacrifice was. Cain simply chose to defy him. You know, people say, well, what about the people before the Ten Commandments? You know, um, how are they held to the same law? Cain kills Abel, and God condemns him for it. So that argument of, well, you, you know, he didn't know. Yes, he did know. Yes, he knew. So there's something that we must understand, okay, that these sacrifices that the Israelites made They were not sufficient. They were not perfect. They were not everlasting. These sacrifices that they're making here did not bring about their salvation. We need to make that clear. Is that many people, many Christians, even today, believe that in the times of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, that these acts produced salvation and that somewhere between the Old Testament and the New, that God somehow changed his mind on what qualified as a worthy, perfect, acceptable, and everlasting sacrifice. This is simply not true. If it were true, that would mean that those Israelites back then had a works-based faith because it was based on something that they did. It was based on something they had to carry out. They had to go and carry out these burnt offerings in order to receive salvation. That's that's just not true. God's plan of salvation hasn't changed. It's never changed. His plan of salvation was determined before 
the creation of the world. So how could the people of the Old Testament receive salvation then? Same way we do. Through their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Now the difference between them and us is that their faith and their hope and their trust was in a Savior to come when ours is in the one who came. So when put that way, it it makes a lot of sense. You know, neither one of us, neither myself nor Moses, saw physically Jesus Christ while we were alive on this earth. And yet we are both saved because my hope is in the Savior who came, who fulfilled the law, and Moses' faith was in the, the Savior to come. So God was showing them that they needed a blood sacrifice, but no sacrifice they could ever offer was truly worthy. This is why they had to continually sacrifice. This, this is a representation to the Israelite people that nothing you do is enough. Nothing you do is truly worthy. There's only one worthy sacrifice. And what does that look like? We see it in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ approached John the Baptist, John accurately recognized him. Let's look over in John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew exactly who Jesus Christ was. He knew he was coming to be the sacrifice that we could not offer, that we could not produce. And then Jesus Christ went willingly, when he went willingly into the wilderness to be tempted, okay? He went willingly. Christ then showed that he and only he could be the propitiation needed that was paid once and for all. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean for everyone in the world that everyone in the world is going to be saved. What I mean is that that one sacrifice was sufficient to cover not the, the sins of all who would come to him, right? To all who he, who he has called. So when Christ was tempted, and then in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet, as we are, yet without sin. Christ was tempted and yet sinned not, is what some translations say. He sinned not, so he qualified himself as the perfect sacrifice when he was tempted in every way and didn't sin. Now, he just showed himself approved. He was approved already, okay? So later Christ would declare his worthiness publicly. So when the Pharisees, if you remember, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a uh, brief synopsis here of what what happened. The Pharisees brought a, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they were trying to entrap him, and they wanted Jesus to decide what they should do with her. 
so how did Jesus reply? He tells them, we all know this story, that he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Right? It says, then he stooped down and started writing something in the sand with his finger. And when they saw it, the people who were there became convicted and they went away. And that Jesus was left alone with the woman. Now, what happens? This is in John 8. So, um, in verses 10 and 11, it says, When Jesus had raised himself, uh, had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, there's something that people tend to forget when they read this passage. It was because Jesus Christ was without sin that he was the only one that could have exacted righteous justice upon her through stoning. He could have, right? Christ said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He wasn't saying, well, you guys aren't... uh, you know, you guys are hypocrites because you got sin too, so you can't accuse. That's not what he, that's, I mean, he might have been saying that in a sense, but what he was doing was he was claiming his authority over her. He's saying, I'm the only one that has the right. And when they went away, what does he do? He chooses to give her grace instead of justice. So the only one, the only one worthy of condemning her showed her mercy. Because Jesus was without sin, he could have exacted righteous justice upon her through stoning. Yet he chose to give her grace. So make no mistake, Jesus did not say this insinuating that no one had the right to stone her. He said this knowing and to make known that he was the one that had the only right to distribute God's justice. Now for some reason, the world today believes that with the birth of Christ, that somehow the law of God is no longer valid. But I challenge you, is that what Jesus taught? Because over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Christ came to fulfill the law so that his children may no longer be bound to the law, but to himself. Now, did you notice the parallels in the different books when God was speaking about the qualifications of a sacrifice? It must be a blood sacrifice. It must be without blemish. It must be perfect, right? But And these offerings must come willingly. Now, when we read through the gospel accounts, Christ goes to the cross willingly. And for time's sake, we're not going to go through that, but go through there and read it. He willingly gave up the perfect blood sacrifice which was himself John 19:30 says so when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished it is finished now that's a weird thing to say right before right before you die but what he was saying was the debt has been paid see you and I broke God's law the 10 commandments we, 
became transgressors of the law. And we, we offended God, the God of the universe. And that offense is so heinous that it's punishable by death. Now, the Bible, which is God's holy word, then tells us that we are completely incapable of any worthy sacrifice to God in our sinful condition. So what does a loving God do? Well, knowing that the only one who can satisfy the wrath that we have stored up for ourselves is himself. Only he could. Only he was, uh, could satisfy the wrath. He humbled himself. He came to earth as a man and lived the sinless life that we did not. Also that he could sacrifice himself for us but also that we might be reconciled back to him. That's real love. You know, think if, for those of you that know, think about the story of Hosea. You know, in that story, we are the harlot, right? God has created us. He's created us. And we blaspheme him. So we run from him. We flee from him. And God loves us so much that not only, even though we belong to him, he still goes and purchases us, purchases us back for himself. And if we repent of our sins and trust solely in Jesus Christ, then we can be called children of the Most High God. So when Jesus said it is finished, that meant it's done. The debt's paid. The wrath is satisfied. Justice is has been served the justice that I deserve he has taken upon himself and then look at what the scriptures say it says and bowing his head he gave up his spirit he gave it up it wasn't taken from him it, 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 it wasn't stripped of him he gave it he offered it willingly just like God commanded so we see that God's standard, what God's standard of a worthy sacrifice is, and now we see that standard completely met through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So now we have to ask, well, how do we honor that worthy sacrifice? How can we? You know, we, we, we've repented, we've believed and trusted in the person of Jesus Christ. Now what? How, how can I, an unworthy, unholy, unrighteous man, worthy of all condemnation, glorify God? Well, we talked about it last week um, quite a bit. But if, if you look over in Luke nine twenty three through 24, this is Jesus speaking. It says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, some of my favorite passages of Scripture, it says, By this we know love, because he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies 
of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Listen to that. Pause. Let's pause right there for a second. That's your reasonable service. That's not some great feat. That's not something amazing, right? People that that follow celebrity preachers and and, uh, biblical teachers and scholars, they think, man, these guys are... They have a knowledge of the word. You know, they're they're sacrificing themselves to go out and preach and teach and educate and inform. I, I, I wish I could be that firm in my foundation. I wish I was, you know, that outspoken about it. I wish I could go do these things. <clears throat> and we think, well, how, you know, we, we do put them on a bit of a pedestal. But then we read in Romans, it humbles you because he says, this is just your reasonable service. Those men are just doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not doing anything great or amazing. I mean, maybe in our eyes, but in the eyes of God, it's their reasonable service. And then verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're to serve we're to serve people. That's how we honor the worthy sacrifice. We're supposed to make ourselves a living sacrifice. We went over this last week in Galatians. But just so that we're clear, just so that everything is written out for us plainly, because that's what we need, because we're all a bunch of babies. Let's read Colossians 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. It says, If if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God... Holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's how we honor the only worthy sacrifice. What, what, what is God's standard for a worthy sacrifice? It must be perfect. It must be without blemish. It must be a blood sacrifice paid for sins. And that sacrifice has been the same and will be the same forever. But fortunately, I say fortunately, that's, that's a huge understatement. Thankfully, Jesus Christ knew exactly what was required. So God was showing them in the Old Testament that their sacrifice was not worthy, was not good enough, and that they needed a better sacrifice. So he gave himself up for us. Now that sacrifice has been, uh, has been sacrificed. The payment has been paid. There's... For those of us who are now regenerate, born-again Christians, there is no condemnation because the wrath that you stored up for yourself, living in a life of unrighteousness and sin, has been completely justified. God has poured out that wrath on his son, but it was due for you and for me. And praise God that we can be called children of God now because we have we have submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ And through our repentance and our faith in him, he has now carried the burden and the weight of our sin, which means he also carried the justice. And he died. He gave up that life willingly. He gave up his life willingly so that we might live. And now we are to honor that sacrifice with everything that we do, with word and deed, and not just word and deed, right? That's what the scriptures tell us. And we must do these things in love. So give thanks to God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, that he did all these things, and it's in his name that we should do all these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we just want to thank you for all the things you've given us. We want to thank you for um, for this day, this this wonderful day that you haven't promised us i thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak father i ask that you continually be with this ministry and that your word might be proclaimed that your truth might be heard and that lives might be changed even if it's only mine father i can't praise you and thank you enough for the many gifts that you've given me through my family and my friends through my health that i take for granted constantly Father, continually break me and mold me more and more to conform me to the image of your Son. It's in his name that I ask and pray these things. Amen.